Welcome to The Worst Bestsellers, where we didn't read about Scott Summers, so you don't have to. I'm Kate. And I'm Renata. And for this episode, we read X-Men, The Last Stand, the movie novelization by Chris Claremont. Joining us to discuss this novelization of the weakest installment of the X-Men movie franchise is Caroline, professional X3 apologist. Hi, Caroline. Hello. Hello. I'd like to note also that in the Kindle edition of this, it is actually called the X-Men TM, The Last Stand movie wow. novelization. <laughs> Just in case you didn't know that X-Men is trademarked. <laughs> so adjust your fanfiction accordingly. Gotta put those disclaimers on there. <laughs> okay. Does that mean that the X-Men are trademarked by Marvel and, like, Sony and whoever owns that? Or are they saying that, like, within the X-Men universe, Xavier is, like, a a trademark, um, what do you call it, a troll? He goes around and he, like, basically sues everybody who has an X in their name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's, like, he goes around and sues everybody who tries to use the letter X, like, when Spike Lee sued the Spike Network. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he is at war with Chris Carter regarding the X-Files. <laughs> Not happy about Vin Diesel and the Triple X movies. Not happy I, at I'm pornography. Really excited to read the fan fiction that is just the court transcripts of uh, Charles Xavier versus Chris Carter. <laughs> wow. Um, you think I'm joking, but that's only because you haven't read my fanfic, which is just people talking about mutant social issues for thousands and thousands of words. Yeah, all that's of your fanfiction is just court transcripts, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a weird format for some of the stories, honestly, but it's just like your thing, you know? <laughs> I do legitimately have one story that's just meeting minutes. <laughs> People like me. Uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> X3, guys. It's not even called X3. I just keep calling it that because the second one was legitimately called X2. So it seems like this one should be called X3. But I X- didn't realize until like two years ago, and this movie's been out for a decade, that it wasn't officially called X3. I had a like AOL chat icon in 2006 that I had downloaded that was the official, like, X-Men The Last Stand logo, and it was just, like, three Wolverine claws for three. Yeah. So, because of that, I thought it was just X3 with, like, I don't know, maybe maybe they had to make a deal with um, Vin Diesel's Triple X. <laughs> also, do you remember when they first started talking about The Wolverine, which is the third Wolverine movie, and they were calling <laughs> it Wolf 3 or Theme 3? Oh, with three. <laughs> <laughs> with three threes, you do because I tweeted about it all the time. But then at some point they they changed it away from that, possibly because of all my tweets. I don't know, uh, but I think that was a good name. I don't know what the problem was with it. I don't know what the problem would be with calling this X three. Actually, no matter what you called this, the title would probably be like the least of its problems. To be honest, <laughs> that is that is legitimate. Let, let's give some background before we even get into the plot of this. I think actually we've talked about this on the podcast before, but a decade ago when this movie came out, Renata and I saw it together in theaters. With a third friend of ours who is a little bit more hashtag normal about X-Men, so I'm sure that was fun for her. So we were really excited because we loved X-Men and we were so stoked and we heard that it was going to be uh, the Phoenix Saga and we were so excited. And then... 
this was the movie that we saw. Yeah, and if you're choosing to listen to this and you haven't, like, seen the X-Men movies, I guess, the first two, X-Men and X2, are legitimately so good. Like, still probably two of my favorite movies, like, of all time. And then this X3, colon, The Last Stand, is just not good, and it really doesn't make sense. Part of it's a little inside baseball, so the director of the first two movies left the third movie to do some shitty Superman movie when they wouldn't move the schedule so that he could do both of them. And he took the actor who played Cyclops with him. So there were like last minute script rewrites. Like they threw out this whole script that they had written. They brought in a new director. It like who completely like massacred the story that they had wanted to tell. It like became a shit show. So the the core of this is that if you don't know the X-Men, uh, like, Cyclops is kind of their team leader, uh, you know, shoots red stuff out of his eyes, has red glasses slash visor that he needs to wear all the time to control those beams, right? That's it's very important to know. And so, I don't know, maybe half an hour into this movie, Scott Cyclops is killed, and his glasses are left behind. And those glasses are, like, very important, because he would not just go around not wearing them, Right. So yeah, then, it was very, very significant. Yeah, it's not just like, oh, he lost his sunglasses again, he'll have to go and buy another pair at Target. They're, like, very important glasses. And then Storm and Wolverine go to look for him, and they find these glasses on the ground, and they're like, huh, well, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and then, granted, then they find Jean Grey, who they thought died in the last movie, and then I could see being distracted by this person that you thought was dead is not actually dead. But they forget about Scott, seemingly, for so long. Uh, so long. And then eventually, it's, nobody even really seems that worked up about it, as you would think if the leader of the X-Men was killed by his girlfriend, who you thought was dead. They are just like, oh, well, nobody liked that guy. Anyway, this. And then... So, so when, like, he, when Wolverine finally, like, puts the pieces together, like, 16 hours later in the movie time, because that's how long this movie feels, <laughs> um, he just is, like, kind of, like, out of nowhere, like, Jean, where's Scott? <laughs> <laughs> and this was, like, the funniest thing that we had ever heard in our lives. <laughs> it was... <laughs> we came out of this movie, like, for the rest of the summer, we would just randomly be walking along, and one of us would say, like, hey, have you seen Scott recently? Oh, never mind, like, let's go to lunch and do crafts or something, like, <laughs> constantly. To this day, we still do this. To this, I, to this day, I'm crying talking about where's Scott. <laughs> and... <laughs> The other thing that's really funny to do is just to casually not even ask where Scott, but just be like, you know what, I feel like there was somebody else who used to go here who was, like, in charge, but I don't know, it's probably not important. Like, where's Wolverine? Let's go hang out with him. Like, the, the, the I guess, epilogue to this story is that, like, like we said, the actor who played Cyclops left with the old director. So at the end of the movie, like, a bunch of characters die and it's implied that basically all of them are, like, maybe not really dead, except for Scott. Scott's dead. Here's his tombstone. He's dead. Scott. Everyone else, maybe. We don't know. Dead. Scott is dead. And an afterthought. 
super dead. So, so Scott is in this movie for like five seconds. Uh... <laughs> can, can I do my counter narrative now? Yeah, please do. Okay, so my counter narrative of the X Men is I was I never was an X Men comics reader, and I think in two thousand when the first X Men movie came out. I I like made some friends take me to the mall to watch X-Men and I'm like, oh, that was really awesome. And also the same day I bought the first Harry Potter book. So I think I just committed for that time to be a giant nerd starting at age 25. <laughs> awesome. So I really, I love that movie. I still love that movie. Like when it came out on DVD, I watched it a gazillion times. And so then I saw X2 when it was new and like, I sort of liked it. But then, like, as I rewatched it, I really hated, like, about the last two-thirds. And then the part when Jean dies, even though it doesn't make any sense, and then Logan and Scott, like, hug each other and cry. I was like, this is the best movie ever. <laughs> and so I kind of forgot, like, all of my mid-second, third-act problems. But I still... Then the X3 came along, and I was, like, getting ready to move and basically just haul up and go someplace else and I like made all my friends come out for one last night and we saw X3 and we're like okay well that was unexpected didn't really (laughs) think that um, Cyclops and Professor Xavier were gonna like die in the first half of the movie but I was like I thought was kind of entertaining anyway also I really kind of maybe like Cyclops now and I got, like, really obsessed with, like, the two and a half minutes that he's actually in the movie, which is <laughs> basically, like, first he sits in his room and cries. Yep. I think that's the first time we see him. With a lot of stubble sitting in his room and crying. He runs into Wolverine and they have this incredibly testosterone-filled um, argument in the hall. By the way, and testosterone-fueled then- is a phrase that is in this novelization, like, 25 times. Yeah, and, uh, it's usually about <laughs> two dudes like facing off with each other. But um, it could and so equally then that... be you could equally say homoerotic. I think for all of those times, and it would probably be about the same. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much what it was going for. So yeah, so then I watched this movie like a whole bunch of times because I really, literally had nothing else to do this summer. That summer, so I watched that movie like six or seven times. And, like, read all the fan fiction and just, like, kind of stared at pictures of James Marsden for hours on end. So I have a lot of – I don't really – like, I'm never going to say this is a good movie, but I thought it was a very watchable movie and admittedly, like, paid more attention to the parts that I wanted to watch. But I just, like, I didn't – compared to, like, the stuff that I really hated in in the second movie, I was like, this movie is okay. It is not the worst movie ever. That is the extent of being an apologist. Now I've read this book and I'm not sure what I think anymore, (laughs) but this book is bad. It's really – funny that you say that um which is really doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about but i'm gonna do it anyway is that um so when the first few movies were out like i i read comic i read the x-men comics as a kid because my dad read them and because i watched the cartoon which i think we talked about a little bit in the last episode i was never really in the fandom for the movies renata was and i think maybe i wrote like two or three stories for her specifically thanks boo and i i read some stuff, but I I wasn't like super into writing it or anything. And then the summer that I moved to Boston when I was unemployed, X-Men First Class came out and I kind of like went to go see it. 
and like became obsessed with it and all I had no money but I had a stack of free movie tickets that I had gotten for Christmas (laughs) (laughs) so all I did all summer I saw that movie like seven or eight times in theaters because I had nothing else to do and I needed to make myself get out of the house so I see some parallels here yeah I I get that I'm starting to get it yeah (laughs) Um, one thing I do I did like about the movies is they were I think an accessible point to write fan fiction for if you want to, if you're interested in these characters but the comics are so convoluted the movies were like a good way to kind of have here's the characters and I can kind of make up more backstory if I want or like do my own thing like it was very approachable to write fan fiction for for the first two movies. And then the third one was like, just kidding, they're all dead now, unless you want to write fiction about Wolverine and Storm, which I kind of do, but it would be nice if I had, like, a few more crayons in my box. So I've written mumble amount of X-Men fanfiction. I think I've written, like, one that acknowledges that X3 happened, and all the others are just, like, set after X2. And... (laughs) I mean, I think I'm actually the same way, even though I didn't mind X3. I, I didn't have to acknowledge that it, because, like, there's not a whole lot to do after that. So, yeah. Plus, then if you're not, if you're not up on the X-Men movies, first of all, why are you still listening to listening to this? I'm sure you've probably turned it off by now. Um, <laughs> yeah, was there a book? Were we going to talk about a book? We're Eventually. getting to it. <laughs> first, um, wait, so the was, there, was Scott in this podcast or what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. It's just Wolverine. <laughs> um, so by the time this comes out, a new X-Men movie will have come out. But the one before that, Days of Future Past, it's a very time travel heavy movie. And the long and short of it is that it erases X3 from existence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the best. And now I'm finally justified <laughs> hashtag justified in never acknowledging it. <laughs> it, like, it was just like that was the main takeaway of the movie was all this yeah. happened and X3 didn't happen. <laughs> yep, yeah, they they show the future which would be around the same time as X3 and it's very pointedly the exact opposite of this. Like everyone yeah. still or, or they could have just been like this is a reboot and we don't have to deal with that. So I'm still confused, but it's okay. You're right. I was very happy when Scott and Jean showed up at the end. Yeah. Also, again, probably you are familiar with the X-Men if you are listening to this still. But if you're not, there's a whole thing in the comics of uh, the Phoenix, which... <sighs> Never mind. It just means... <laughs> That's like three hours of another podcast. But Jean Grey in the comics has died and then brought been brought back by this Phoenix Force. And also it's like a very powerful destructive force and it can make... Jean into the dark phoenix where she does bad things which is mainly what happens in this book I mean well movie movie and book because they're the same but x2 ends with Jean dying because of the phoenix basically but the way that I think it is a problem of x2 even though I love it is that it really just seems like she didn't have to die in that way like if everybody's about to drown and she like saves them basically and then drowns herself in the process but it really seems like if she had the power to save everybody else and do that she could have just got herself on the plane like she could have done that from inside the plane it seems like and they didn't really justify in the movie like why she couldn't just do it from the plane she just like can't and so she dies 
but she needed to like be reborn. She needed to like have. She needed to like have no future, you know, and just accept the power that um, that and you know that how overwhelming her power was. So I, I, I mean, it, you're right. It logically makes no sense. But yeah, but well, but g- segueing finally, like 15 minutes into this podcast, <laughs> finally segueing into the novelization of X3. I did like that because it gave us a lot of inner monologue for Jean, and it like explicitly states oh, yeah, I could have done that from inside the plane, but, like, this force sort of compelled me to die because I needed to be reborn and, like, reconstruct myself with my powers, blah, 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 which is never explicitly stated in the movie, only in the novelization. And I think we've all been talking a little bit before recording about how we all kind of like this novelization, and in some ways it really succeeds at what I think the best part of a movie novelization can be, which is to, like, flesh out and provide a little bit more motivation or backstory for the things that you see in the movie that, you know, the movie necessarily has to kind of keep moving along, and it can't always give you, like, nor should it give you, like, everything that a character's thinking. But this novelization uh, does for a lot, and it gives us a lot more of Jean, which is good, because she's sort of an important character, but she, like, barely talks in the movie. She just sort of glowers and destroys things yeah though unfortunately i like there's a whole chapter toward the end where it's like giving her point of view but then it completely there's no explanation from like the transition from that to the scene where she goes crazy and they have to kill her that just like it's like there's no explaining this i give up yeah i mean he did still i think have to kind of work within the bones of the movie yeah yeah, well exactly but it's sort of a major flaw yeah, can we talk about Chris Claremont? Please do. Well, this was credited to Chris Claremont, who wrote, like, most of the X-Men throughout the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, including the original Dark Phoenix saga, right. which which we talked about a little bit before, which this is, like, very loosely based on. So he, at first when I saw this, I was like, there's no way that Chris Claremont actually wrote this. This is just like some intern whose name on it. My opinion changed as I read this book, because for one thing, I mean, Chris Claremont, he's, you know, a veteran of the comic industry. He also, I don't think he's actually like 120 years old, but he kind of seems like it. (laughs) And all of the cultural references in this movie, in this book, were like, from 1972 (laughs) I don't understand and also he just like literally like does not acknowledge essentially that there's a few things where you kind of can't reconcile the continuity with um what's in the comics like the the Warren Worthington character and a couple others like they just don't fit at all but for Mm -hmm. most of them he just will try to be like I'm gonna tell you all these things about Kitty Pryde that are about Kitty Pride from like twenty years of comics and has nothing to do with this movie, right? Like for for example, I think my favorite example is in the comics. Kitty Pride has a pet dragon. Don't worry about it. I cannot explain it to you right now, but <laughs> she does. And in the novel, in the movie, she does not because they have shit to do. They don't have time to put a dragon in there. It's not Game of Thrones. But in the novel, <laughs> he like briefly mentions, and Kitty went back to her bedroom with her dragon Lockheed. Uh, who, like, something-something dragon, and then never again mentioned, not important (laughs) at all, but he just wanted you to know that, yes, she does have the dragon and just stays in her room all the time, and that's why you don't see it in the movies. So there's, like, all these other things, too, where it's, like, um, specifically, like, the comics that he wrote. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's, like, 
a part where explicitly he talks about how Kitty's best friends with a character who does not even appear in the movies, sure does but that. was her friend in the actual comics, the comics that he was writing at the time in like the 1980s. So as a person who has read those comics and cares about those characters, I was pretty on board with that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. There's kind of some fun little Easter eggs for nerds. And I, I have to imagine the only people reading the novelization of X-Men 3 colon The Last Stand are nerds. <laughs> so yeah, we, we're pretty much on board for that, I think. Oh, and then there's, like, when they're in New York, they have Bishop and yeah, Bishop. Charlotte Jones, who is, like, from the district, which I don't even think Claremont wrote. So, yeah, so that, and he, like, has the people in New York. But then what I was bringing up about Claremont is that he also, like, wrote almost all of, like, the really key, like, Jean Grey stuff. So, like, when he writes things, like, in her mind, and he writes, like, the origin at the beginning where she, um like her friend died and she had like a telepathic link. That's all stuff from Claremont comics. And um, so that was kind of like, I'm like, Oh, I actually really feel like I'm reading a neat little story about Jean and her friends, which has nothing to do with what happened in this movie. Correct. Um, there, it's also kind of a fine line because there are other things in the novel that are from the comics that didn't work as well. I think a lot of the dialogue kind of affectations, like, Bub is a you know a word Wolverine uses a lot in the comic. <laughs> Doesn't say it out loud that much in the movies because it sounds a little goofy and maybe not as like intimidating as you think it might in the comics. But Bub is thrown a lot, and then also Flamin, which is Wolverine's like he can't swear, so he'll say Flamin a lot in the comics, oh, yeah. like get out of my Flamin way or whatever. And it, it sounds real dumb, and if you were to say it out loud in a grown-up movie in the year two thousand, it would not. <laughs> come off well, but you would not know that from this dialogue, because he is saying flamin' so much. <laughs> and not once is he talking about Cheetos. Not once. <laughs> That's just wrong. <laughs> but in my fanfiction, he eats flamin' Cheetos off of his claws, obviously. <laughs> um, my favorite random thing that actually is not one of the swears or fake swears or anything is that at one point Kitty calls Wolverine a knuckle head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still laughing about it. Yeah, which again is the thing she says in the comics and you're kind of like, okay, that's cute. I don't know. There's things that you can get away with in comics that when you try to say them out loud don't work as well and I gotta say knucklehead up there <laughs> up there on that list I'm bringing it back <laughs> wait is that like a slur should we should we bleep that up for our Canadian listeners <laughs> there's a there's a hockey team called the Canucks so but not the knucklehead <laughs> yeah well no but the, although they should be <laughs> Oh, you're saying Canuck itself might. No, I'm saying, yeah, I'm saying it's not a slur as far as I know. I thought it was a slur, but there's a professional sports team named afterwards, so it's probably not. I don't know. Okay, so by that logic, Maple Leafs is also not a slur. (laughs) They're pretty bad. (laughs) But we should, we should write our own comic where that's Wolverine's new thing. It's just like, get out of my way, you Maple Leafs. (laughs) <laughs> or just only Canadian sports team so he was like get out of my way you you raptor you jay <laughs> I think about a sports team <laughs> Maple Leaf would probably be the main one though <laughs> so anyway have you guys seen Scott though <laughs> is he still in his book 
<laughs> Not much. <sighs> also, right, okay, so yeah. So um, another thing that is annoying about both the movie and the book is so uh, Scott's serious girlfriend, Jean, has died like two years ago or something-ish. He's still sad about it, and everyone's like, get the fuck over it, Scott. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, it seems like that's okay. Like, that is a reasonable amount of time to still be grieving. Your your tragically, like, self-sacrificially killed girlfriend. But he's just like, everyone's like, get over it. Even Professor Xavier, who is supposed to be so, like, understanding and, like, Scott's father figure... He, before Scott dies, he's like, you know what, Storm, I was gonna make Scott headmaster, but he is just too much of a downer, so it's gonna be you. And she's like, are you sure? Because I really thought Scott, and he's just like, he is just still too upset about Jean. And and she's like, well, okay, I guess. And, it, <laughs> and I mean, I know, like, at various times in the comic, Storm has taken over as leader of the team, and that's like, that's fine, like, she's great, but... It just seems really mean-spirited on everyone's behalf. Yeah, like, it, it so clearly, to me, um, is born of the fact that Marsden jumped ship with Brian Singer. And it's funny, especially, too, because Storm has taken over in the past. And, like, so many things in this movie are very much, like, clearly setting Storm up to be the new leader if there's more movies and, like, putting her in charge. And... I say this with no offense to Halle Berry, who I think in other places is a very good actress. She's just garbage as Storm. She's just not very good. And it was just, like, cringeworthy <laughs> to have, to be, like, yeah, at the time to think, like, oh, God, we're going to get more X-Men movies. And Halle Berry as Storm is going to be the leader and the star and dear god help us well they they just have no idea what her character is supposed to be like yeah. it's not like there's an absolute she gets nothing yeah i i think a lot of it is on the script and not in hallie so much um yeah. the other thing also is that this book and movie both but i hear i say the book is worse at it because it's adding more and it's just trying to do more and not doing any of it well. It's trying to simultaneously set up a that Jean Grey is the love of Wolverine's life and B, oh yeah, and Wolverine and Storm are gonna hook up. So it it really goes a lot into like how much Logan loved Jean and she was so beautiful and like whatever. And then him being like, Okay, I wrote out this quote because I was like, What the fuck? Damn, he thought, she's a lot less of a princess than when I first rolled in the door. Still a long way from just plain folks, which is in quote marks, because that's a thing. <laughs> but she's got possibilities. Well, yeah, it's so weird. Like, that, that they're just trying to be like, oh, he loves Jean so much. and But I think it's just because Claremont, like, likes that ship and just, like, <laughs> likes Storm. So he's, and I sympathize that as a, as a writer who has a lot of affinity for Storm, he wants something for her to do but maybe it shouldn't just be making wolverine horny i don't know <laughs> right and again i do like wolverine and storm as a couple i think that's been done well in the comics at other times i think that's fine but if really the core of this movie is that wolverine loves gene so much that he is the only one who was willing to kill her to put her out of her misery basically and there's just really, I can, so much of the book is just about him angsting about that and angsting about everything. Maybe you just save your Storm stuff for next time. Like, just save it, because he's got too right. much going on right now. And it makes her seem like a total afterthought, and it shouldn't be that, because Storm is great. 
even if played by Halle Berry. Let's, um, let's, I, I realize now that we've been basically just talking about this as if people know what's happening in it. So real quick, like not necessarily the in-depth summary we normally do. I'm just going to hit on the major plot points of this book. Uh, so it's an X-Men book. The idea is that there are people in the world who genetically have superpowers and some oh, of you're, them. You're taking it way back. I was like, we kind of explained, but no, we guess we did not explain what X-Men are. If you made it half an hour into this X-Men podcast without knowing what X-Men are, I salute you. Please tweet at me, and I will send you a gem in the mail. <laughs> so some of them, some people use their powers for good. Some people use them for evil. Um, some people think that most normal humans, well, some normal humans think that people who have these powers, mutants, are bad, and they should you know, be rounded up and put in camps and yeah, have there's, their powers there's a lot of away. not very subtle Holocaust illusions being made often to mutants. It's cool. Yes. So at this point, a lab has created something that can neutralize mutant powers by taking blood from a young boy whose power is to neutralize other mutants, and they're marketing it as a quote unquote cure for mutant powers. The anti-hero type person magneto thinks that this is step one in the humans using it to control mutants against their will professor x the you know supposed good guy is like eh, i don't know that that like let's just chill and see what happens so magneto is rounding up all of these mutants to get together to go um to this facility where they're creating this cure which is on alcatraz and meanwhile, Scott, a.k.a. Cyclops, the leader Wait, oh of the Wait, oh my god, X- he's in this? <laughs> <laughs> Who? <laughs> um, as we said, he's super bummed because his girlfriend died in the last movie. He runs out in sadness. She comes back from the dead and kills him. Wolverine and Storm go to look for him, find her unconscious body, bring her back. Uh, She eventually wakes up and she's gone kind of mad with power. So she leaves the X-Men and ends up hooking up with Magneto and the bad guys. There's a big giant confrontation between the heroes and the villains at the facility where they're creating this cure. Uh, At one point it's like daytime and then the camera angle changes and it's nighttime. (laughs) Yes. That's somebody's mutant power. They just didn't mention it. (laughs) Eventually, Jean, mad with power, is destroying everything, and in order to save the day, Wolverine has to, through the power of his love, kill her to stop her from destroying everyone. Uh, so His love and his healing factor. Yes. He's the only one who can get close enough to her to not be destroyed by her power, but also, at least in the movie, although it was not emphasized here, nothing ever happened to his pants. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like his so, shirt melts off, his skin melts off, but his pants are fine. <laughs> um, so that's, I mean, that's roughly the plot of this movie. We are leaving out a lot of glaring plot holes that you could drive a truck through. Professor X dies and sacrifices himself in order to try to appeal to Jean uh, before she goes off with Magneto. Uh, like we said, Scott dies, Jean dies. Um, Rogue, the, the character who. I'm not going to explain who Rogue is. You know who she is or you don't care. Um, Rogue has, I will explain actually, I guess her power is, you know, she touches somebody, she steals like their life energy and some of their powers if they're a mutant. And so 
her power she thinks of as kind of a curse because it means she can't really touch anybody too much or they get hurt. She, in the movie, decides to go take the cure because she just wants to kind of be normal and, like, make out with her boyfriend and stuff. And everybody kind of angst about that. We can talk about that, actually. I don't know. Uh, everyone is kind of like, ooh, not great, Rogue. But anyway, in the book, she does not do that. Except for at the end, maybe she does. Oh, they kind of, I thought she was wearing gloves at the end. Yeah, I, I want to talk that... about that because she okay, was. But there were some other typos and, like, misplaced words in the uh-huh. book. And so they have this conversation that's very like what it is in the movie where she goes to her uh-huh. boyfriend and she's, he's like, you know, you, you didn't have to do it for me. And she's like, I didn't do it for you. I did it for me. And in the movie, she reveals like, that, you know, she's not wearing gloves and like so that she can, meaning she doesn't have her powers anymore. She can touch people. And then in the book, like they have that little conversation and then it's like, and she rolled up her sleeves and she was still wearing gloves. And I almost wonder if that was, like, a typo and it was supposed to say, like, wasn't wearing gloves. Because otherwise it's really strange. Well, you know yeah. what, though? Because there was definitely two versions of it shot. So I'm sure that when Claremont was writing it, they had not decided whether <laughs> she was going to take the cure or not. So I there may have, like, well been a cut and paste. But there's several other places where there's obviously, like, dialogue that's, like, non sequiturs. And so I'm, like, I wondered if they cut and pasted it, it, it to match the script. So I think in this version we were supposed to think that she did not take the cure. Interesting. Yeah, but it was – I was knows? confused by that, too, because I think – I must have read too quickly because I thought it wasn't until I looked in the Google Doc and you guys were talking about how she didn't take the cure because that the way that that conversation is set up, it doesn't really make sense if she didn't take the cure. Right. Exactly. But earlier in the movie, like at, at the point in the movie where she does go to take the cure, in the novel they explicitly say she went to the clinic and then she changed her mind and she came back before she could take it. But then the mm-hmm. epilogue scene that we're talking about with the gloves that she is still wearing, even though the dialogue kind of seems like she wasn't. So that sort of implies that, well, after they kind of took care of business with Magneto and stuff, then she still went out and got the cure. Which yeah. I don't even know how she would have done that because, like, all the clinics were being bombed. Maybe she stole some from the, tacti- the tactical jet. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I figured, I guess in my head, I had I had figured that they probably had samples to study or something that she maybe got her hands on, but it was, <laughs> uh, it was a mystery. <laughs> she went to ruthless.com slash store, and there it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, can we, like, as much as I don't want to, can we talk about what they're, and I think this is partly just to carry over from the fact that the movie doesn't make any sense and like in the movie like i'm okay with some of that in the movie because it just kind of like goes by quickly but here i think claremont's almost trying to make this be like a dialogue about well here are some reasons people would want this and here are some that they wouldn't but also it's like the holocaust but also at the point where they're in they're lining up to take the cure. The, um, I think, human, not mutant, um, police officer, Charlotte, who is African-American, thinks about, like, what her dad saw. and The schools were integrated in Little Rock. Yeah. So I'm like, well, but it's also like they're at a clinic that's getting bombed, which I remember in the movie made me think of abortion. Uh-huh. It does have that kind of vibe. 
I'm like, there's like at least three different political things going on, none of which are really very good analogies to this. And I remember when the movie came out, a lot of people who had thought that the first two movies were pretty explicitly about like mutation as queerness, Mm -hmm. which kind of gets totally dropped in this film and then becomes a sort of thing about curing. And so it kind of seems like it's about reparative therapy. So like there's a zillion, there's like a zillion different political things that don't work together. And I felt like there was a few scenes where they were trying to do something interesting with it. Like with the, there's some stuff in here with Hank McCoy as the secretary of mutant affairs that was a little fleshed out from the film that I'm like, okay, well, like I would watch a movie slash read a book about Hank McCoy's tenure as secretary of mutant affairs. <laughs> oh my affairs. God, I would too. Those totally. were my favorite parts. Like what if, and I think my biggest problem with why I still don't totally understand why movie novelizations like this are a thing is that there's just pages and pages of like describing fight scenes Uh (laughs) and i'm like that is in there like magneto moving the golden gate bridge yes it's dumb in the movie it doesn't make sense but it looks kind of cool that's why they did it so don't spend 10 pages telling me about the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, is it full on, because he drops you in on a tour who is explaining literally the history of the Golden Gate Bridge. Which (laughs) actually, though, actually that's an X2 also, not the bridge thing, but in the actual movie, they're sneaking into the White House on a White House tour, and you just pick up some facts about the White House while you're there. But (laughs) in the movie, they did it well because the the guide is, like, quoting President Lincoln as part of her tour, Uh and it kind of, like, sets up some of the themes of the movie. Which, to go back to your earlier point, I think one of the strengths and weaknesses both of X-Men as a franchise is that it... It's sort of a flexible metaphor. (laughs) Like, you can use mutants versus humans as, like, uh, black and white or um, queer and straight. Or it can kind of serve as all these different, like, metaphors for various different oppressed groups with varying levels of success. But, yeah, you're right. The first two, it really, the way that it's talked about seems much more like they're talking about being queer. Like, well, have you tried not being a mutant? That kind of thing. And then in this one, it's like not that yeah there's just see and I think part of that too at least with the queer thing and the way that it gets dropped is uh there was a panel at I want to say San Diego Comic-Con like the summer after X-Men First Class came out Uh like a year later that I was not at but a friend of mine was at and she told me about later where it was screenwriters talking about various things and it was one, one of the screenwriters was who was there had worked on the X-Men movies and one of them had worked on the new Star Trek and they were talking about kind of these like homo romantic relationships and homosexual relationships in them. And, um, and I think Brian Singer has said this in a lot of interviews too, that, that Brian Singer very specifically, you know, made mutants as an allegory for queerness, like, as explicit as he could at the time Mm -hmm. in the 2000s in his movies and because he's gay. And that was something that spoke to him and that it was very important that that be reflected in the movies. And, you know, as we've said before, like there was a lot of behind the scenes shakeup, shakeup specifically around him. So I can't help but wonder if maybe the shift, because then if you look at like the other, uh, you know, other movies 
that theme is still sort of reflected mm-hmm. in there as well. So I, I can't help but wonder if maybe they were like, well, fuck Singer, like, we're gonna, we're gonna go somewhere else because screw that guy. Yeah, I think it's definitely some of that. But I also, I just keep feeling like this story is too incoherent to, to like, even give them credit for, like, going in an ideological direction or not. Maybe, I, I don't know, maybe that's not fair. Yeah, I feel but... like part of it, too, might be, um, at least in the novelization in the movie, there's really no excuse. Mm-hmm. Claremont was really the first, like... I, I get into arguments about this with people all the okay, time sure. because people on the internet constantly are saying like the X-Men were created as, you know, a reflection of race relations in the United States and mm-hmm. Professor X was supposed to be Martin Luther King Jr. and Magneto was supposed to be Malcolm X. That's bullshit. That is not true. That yeah, was that's not, not that is completely something that Stanley said a- attributed to what was going on. But that in those early X-Men comics, that was not happening at all. And it was Chris Claremont who started to integrate those themes into the comics once he took over. And he's also the person who first started to integrate the idea that um, Magneto was a Holocaust survivor. Mm-hmm into it as well so I, I can't help but wonder if this isn't another case of him taking all of these these headcanons and backstories that yeah. he had from when he was writing comics and trying to kind of shove them in to flesh out this mess of a movie that right. he has to write a book about yeah no you're not wrong I, there's definitely just yeah. you know he, he wants it to be about something which I give him credit for right. where, which I don't necessarily know was even going on in the film yeah and it's it just overall though kind of like just comes up like X-Men soup mm-hmm. like let's throw all the different ideas that we can in here and hopefully it'll be okay because the ingredients that we have to work with are garbage yeah. right and yeah, well, because also the movie is kind of two big comics plot lines that were separate, that they're smushed together and also moved into a different time period and also missing a lot of the backstory that made mm-hmm. Dark Phoenix kind of make sense at all, even. Oh, and can I say another thing about the Phoenix thing? Please do. Because I, maybe it's just, I meant to rewatch this movie and did not get around to it, but I think... I don't know how much was the film and how much was just that, like, this was what the part of fandom that I was in focused in on. But I felt like in the film, you got a little bit more of Xavier really made a mistake by trying to, you know, put or he or he he sort of was the sort of first wrongdoer by trying to, like, suppress Gene's powers Right. And, and and that's like where the sympathy that Wolverine has with her comes from. Like when he talks about like he knows what it's like to be an animal in a cage and that dialogue is in there. But I don't feel like the like I don't feel like Claremont as the novelist really takes seriously that that was something problematic on Xavier's behalf part. Like it, it doesn't really seem to be emphasized in the same way. But then again, I I do, it, let me put it this way. It's not emphasized in this in the same way that it was in the fan fiction I was reading uh-huh. in 2006. So I, I almost wish I had watched the movie before we recorded this, but then I remember that I would have to watch the movie, and I'm <laughs> glad that I didn't. Um, but yeah, because I'm trying to remember, I know that it was mentioned in the movie that, you know, oh, like, Professor X was the first person who did this, and, like, that's part yeah. of how Magneto appeals to her. I don't know that there was a big emphasis on it that I remember. Yeah. But so kind, I watched the movie semi-recently. There kind of was. It's more in the book because 
Um, because we have are so much in Wolverine's head, and like Carrie said, that is something that Wolverine really focuses in on. But it's mentioned uh, multiple times in the movie. I mean, there's the flashback, and then yeah, Wolf, uh, Magneto appeals to her that way, and Wolverine flips out at Xavier about it, and Xavier's like, "You don't understand. I have a tough choice." Like most, those scenes are all in the movie. We just don't have all the monologue-y backstory thoughts that we get in the book. I, I just felt like that got crowded out in the, you know, actually in the book though. I, I kind of wanted more of that, but again, that may just be like, Oh, he had a zillion things to focus on. And that wasn't the, right. The, well, that wasn't number one. Claremont also might be, a, you know, trying to come at it sideways because in the comics that he wrote, the Phoenix was a separate space force that possessed uh-huh. Jean Grey. Right, yeah. And just saying it out loud, you can understand why they didn't put it in the movie because it sounds a little <laughs> sounds a little silly. <laughs> sounds a little silly for these X-Men to have a space bird, but whatever. Uh, and versus in the movies, it's clear that it's the Phoenix as part of Jean herself, that she was so mm-hmm. powerful that Charles Xavier locked part of her power away from her inside of her own mind so she wouldn't be able to access it. And then after she dies question mark and comes back then it's all released and she has all this raw power again so like the the phoenix was inside her all along in the movies <laughs> and that also is maybe a little silly also but differently but anyway so claremont might be responding to that differently because he's kind of like well that's not my phoenix right yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting too to think because I remember after we saw this movie and we were like so disappointed I think like literally on the way home from the movie theater or maybe the next day we drove to the video store and took out every X-Men cartoon video (laughs) that they had um, including the Phoenix Saga and basically like sat and watched it and we're like why didn't they just do it this way. Like they could have made a better movie and thinking about it now, like I think part of the problem is that they were trying to do like three different comics plots at once. If they had just focused on the Phoenix saga, I think they could have done it in a way that both in the movie and then, you know, in the book eventually, um, (laughs) it really did it more justice and explained it better than just kind of being like a bunch of dudes talking about something that's happening to a woman who's literally just standing in the woods right. staring in space. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I think that that's it is kind of an internal story the way it's the way that it's set up and it's they picked cuz this is one of I think I said before we started I have like X-Men movie opinions that nobody agrees with um in, including my my dislike of the second one but I also like I actually really like the idea of the phoenix being internal to Jean I think there's a lot to do with that but it is like it's maybe not the best choice for a movie <laughs> because yeah. it's something that you're right you can't dramatize it you just have her like sitting there looking kind of dead eyed the whole time <laughs> except when she's flirting with with um Wolverine, which is kind of awesome. So that's this movie. And and this (laughs) book. This book movie. All right. So we will transition into our dramatic readings and we'll share just a few fragments of this book with you. Although, of course, the truest dramatic reading of this novelization would just be to watch the movie. But we don't necessarily recommend that. There is a Rift Tracks available for this movie, which I do actually recommend. Um, I've seen this movie more times than I should probably admit in public entirely because I will just watch it with the Rift Tracks because it's pretty funny. (laughs) I've watched it multiple times without the Rift Tracks, but I've also watched Wolverine Origins like 100 times and that movie is also 
terrible. I was <laughs> gonna say without a yeah. I, I mean, I watched, I watched it a lot that summer, but I don't know if I can go home again. You know, <laughs> might be just as well. I could probably still dig up that picture of um, Marzen with like the um, tricolor um, stripes on his jean jacket that I had as my um, computer wallpaper for a long time. <laughs> Beautiful. So the first section we have is what I think is the first scene in the movie, which is teenage Jean Grey, who's about to be visited by um, Magneto and Xavier, who are coming to tell her about the mutant school. Which, by the way, I just want to interject quickly that we forgot to say earlier that that was also one thing that we did like about the movie and at the time is that it showed Charles and Eric running the school together, which had not really featured in the first two movies, but was something that featured in fan fiction, obviously. And of course, now we have our whole prequel trilogy about Eric and Charles's epic romance slash attempt to start a school. But this really, and it in the movie, they're sort of CGI de-aged them a little bit, and that technology wasn't quite ready yet, but they tried. <laughs> so we, we get sort of baby uh, Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart in the movie for this scene. And it- it's literally the first scene, so we had such high hopes. Yeah, we're like, oh, this is great. <laughs> and isn't it um, amazing? No, isn't not. McKellen wearing like a bright purple suit? Yeah, and I, I and think a fedora. It, I believe in this. Jean like watches him out of the window and it admires her his style. And she's also upstairs. Like I guess she's like a twelve year old girl and she's reading like science fiction classics like Childhood's End and the Dune trilogy. Which uh-huh. I'm like, that's not really my um, head canon for Jean Grey. But you know, you do you, Chris Claremont. Jean's parents wouldn't let her have Sweet Valley High. She had to read Dune. <laughs> Clearly. And right. that's why she grew up to become the Phoenix Devourer of Worlds. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. We ready? Uh, I guess so. Oh, so anyway, this starts out with a really, this is, I don't know whose viewpoint this is supposed to be in because this is a problem the book has, but it's a like interesting description of this 12 year old girl. Let me put it that way. <laughs> Jean was taller than when Annie died, but still lean and rangy despite the first curves of womanhood. Her hair was a dark red, like a fire seen in the heart of the deepest forest, where the flames are mostly hidden by trees and shadow. Her beauty was self-evident. By the time she was full-grown, it would be breathtaking, with the foundation of bone structure that guaranteed it would only improve with age. Jean sat on the couch opposite the two men, her demeanor as polite as it was guarded. She decided on the way down to let them make the first move. Xavier obliged her. It's very rude, you know but his lips didn't move. Her breath went out of her all in a huff. It never occurred to her that he could do what she did. To read my thoughts, or Mr. Lensher's, without our permission. He was sending her more than words. There was a vast and complex texture to their communication that told her she'd been busted from the first fleeting telepathic contact as they drove down the street. While she'd been spying on them, Xavier was taking her full measure as a sigh without her being the slightest bit aware of it. Lencher picked up the conversation from there, only he spoke out loud, suggesting to Jean that his abilities differed markedly from Xavier's. Did you think you were the only one of your kind, girl? She intended to keep her response to herself and bridled ever so slightly when Xavier heard it. What kind is that, she thought. We are mutants, Jean. We are like you. She felt a flicker of irritation, like the striking of a match within her soul. 
heralding a flash of temper that was coming more and more often lately, more and more intense, no matter how hard she tried to keep it under control. She smiled in a way that promised trouble, a warning. Really, the thoughts and emotions that accompanied that single word were raw and rude. I doubt that. Xavier reacted first to a volley of psychic alarms, Lencher following his gaze to look at the sturdy window toward the street. Mr. Pash was running headlong down the length of his front yard, partly dragged by his lawnmower, partly chasing frantically after it. As the old machine launched itself skyward as if it were wearing blue tights and a cape and was bent on leaping tall buildings in a single bound. At the same time, the stream of water from Mr. Lee's hose decided to rebel against the rain of gravity and see what it was like to pour up instead of down. From him, Xavier and Jean heard a muttered expletive, while Pash's initial frisson of startlement gave way to a bark of incredulous laughter. Then the laughter faded as he caught sight of what else was floating. All along the street, every car in view had suddenly levitated more than 10 feet into the air. Nothing else had changed. It was as though they'd been lifted on invisible platforms. All told, better than 10 tons of metal hung suspended, yet Jean wasn't even straining. Letcher couldn't help but smile nor comment. Oh, Charles, I like this one. Xavier wasn't amused. You have more power than you can imagine, Jean. Her thought instinctive, defiant. I don't know. I can imagine quite a lot. You tell him, Jean. By the way, in the movie, the Mr. Lee is, of course, Stanley's cameo with the hose. Another strong start to the movie. I actually thought the person who he's calling Mr. Pash was Chris Claremont, but I could be wrong. Oh, I, maybe. So, so I don't know if that's like an inside joke, but um, I'm <laughs> Also, the president's name in this is David Cockrum, who is, yes. was an expert artist. Yeah. <laughs> who I think who had i don't he i don't know if he had recently died when this movie came out or if that's just a coincidence but anyway also in tribute to that when the president of the united states finds out that charles xavier has died he cries while drawing a sketch of xavier from memory just like presidents <laughs> do you know <laughs> i i that Claremont is telling us that it is actual david cockrum who should have been president <laughs> but who knows anyway all right our next dramatic reading is our favorite. Not to play favorites, but it definitely is. And you'll know what it is once we get into it. And uh, for this, Kate will be the narrator, uh, Caroline will be Jean, and I will be Wolverine. You've been through hell. Maybe you ought to take things easy. He had another thought. She hadn't yet said a word about Cyclops. Charlie said he might be different. Her look darkened, and he no longer had to hold her back. The mood was broken. He would know, wouldn't he? You think he's not inside your head, too? Look at you, Logan. He's tamed you. The words struck home because he thought them himself from time to time. But he didn't react. Jean, where's Scott? She didn't answer. We traced the beacon on his bike to Alkali Lake. I found his glasses there. He chose not to mention the belt buckle or the weird physical manifestations they'd encountered and considered that she might pluck them from his thoughts regardless. Still, no response, so he called her name again. Jean! She looked towards him, eyes lost and filled with a mix of confusion and pain. He set Scott's glasses down on the bed between them and her gaze followed his down to look at them. Where is he, darling? I? She blinked, sniffed, shook her head. 
blinked again, as though waking from the deepest of sleeps, not comprehending why her eyes were filling with tears. I'm sorry, Logan. Her expression twisted with the realization that she had perhaps lost something supremely precious, but didn't yet quite know precisely what. Where am I? She asked suddenly, catching him by surprise. She really meant it. She had no idea where she was. You're in the mansion infirmary, Jean. He took her by the hand, willing his strength into her slim frame, hoping that by taking it she'd be able to use him as an anchor against the chaos swirling inside her mind. Whatever else was going on in her world, she had to accept that he loved her. That had to be the absolute, the one constant she could depend on. Why that was so important, he hadn't a clue, but he'd learned early to trust his instincts. Listen to me, darling. He went on gently, as though to a spooked filly. I like that part. I'm using it. <laughs> <laughs> you need to tell me what happened at Alkali Lake. To Scott. She touched the glasses with the tips of thumb and forefinger. Who? She said. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Leave that in. <laughs> wait, wait. Okay. Were we going to do Ready. a dramatic reading, or what's what are we doing? <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> try again. Try again. Oh God. She moaned, and right then he knew for certain what had until now been just a suspicion. He'd never see Scott Summers again. He spared a quick glance away from her face as objects began to rattle around the periphery of the room. Oh God, Logan! This last was an outcry of desperation and terror, and he knew she had found herself facing a memory and a grief that she could not bear. The side effects on the room worsened accordingly. Screws spun from their holes and shot through the air. The fluid in the IV bags began to drip upwards, and Logan's skin began to tingle in the way it did on the eve of a wicked electrical storm. The smell of ozone filled the air. Once more, he took her by the shoulders. Talk to me, Jean. Focus. She was whispering so softly he couldn't make out the words. He read her lips as they moved and didn't want to. Jean! Kill me, Logan, she said again, making sure he could hear, telling him with her voice and with her thoughts. He shook his head in absolute refusal. Only now she took him by the shoulders with a strength that matched his own, her voice building in power and resonance with every word. Kill me before I kill someone else. Please, Logan, I'm begging. You're the only one who can. Kill me! He looked into her eyes and saw the end, just as when they kissed. The end, the beginning, all that came in between, as great and as terrible as imagination could make them. He beheld creation in all its wonder and glory. He knew she was right, and found himself flawed enough, stubborn enough, human enough, to think he could deny it and find a way to win. That guy Scott probably could never do that. Alright, and our last dramatic reading is from the big battle scene at the end, and it exemplifies some of the completely random character monologues that we get through this throughout the whole time, and uh, it's pretty great. And for this one, I will be the narrator, Kate will be Magneto, and Caroline will be Wolverine. 20 meters away, 
bursts of power fell from Jean with increasing strength and frequency, creating what could only be described as tears in the fabric of the universe. Magneto, whose training and research in the fields of subatomic physics were rivaled only by his erstwhile ability to manipulate the forces found there, shook his head in wonderment and utter weariness. He was spent in soul, far more than he had ever been in the flesh, more so even than at Auschwitz. He had only one moment in his life to measure against this one, the death of his beloved firstborn, his only child, his Anya, and the horror he had seen in the eyes of his wife, Magda, whom he'd saved from the camps, but who could not bear to look at him, stay with him, once she'd beheld the vengeance he'd taken against those who'd kept him from saving his daughter. What have I done? More to the point, what's she doing? Discorporating the planet. Stripping existence around her down to its primal component states. Why? Magneto snorted. Because she can. You're rational, bub. It's what Charles understood that I didn't. The true meaning of the next step in evolution. For us, for all our powers, we're talking little more than baby steps. For her, seven-league boots. I don't believe she can handle the transition. Time for you to go. I'd like to stay. For this, you lost the right. I'm sorry. Yeah. And that's the end of that scene. Yeah. (laughs) I, I actually just realized reading that, that that's what the book Childhood's End is about. <laughs> like, it's all about how, um, like, aliens coming until Earth evolves to be above, like, humanity and all becomes, like, a star child or something. So that's the book that he said that Jade was reading when she was 12. So. Oh, interesting. <laughs> also, like, the star child is 2001, but it's the same kind of thing. Also, uh, the movies, they show a little bit of Magneto's childhood, but they never show that part about his wife and his child, which are from the comic. So, cool, just it's, casually dropping that tragedy into the novel, Claremont. Isn't he, like, he's, like, 14 in the first movie where, where yeah, he was he, in the camp. Yeah, in the movie, he's definitely a child in the camps. It was, I guess... Yeah, it just seems like he's like, yes, I remember when I wrote this in a comic. Which, I mean, it's very sad, but it's just, I don't know why it's there in the book. Yes. <sighs> All right, and those are dramatic readings. We did it. Yay. So we're going to move on to some games. And we're going to bring back a game we played a few episodes ago called Fucking Marrying Killing. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you guys, Fucking Marrying Killing of Scott, Jean, and Logan. Please remember, please remember the rules of fucking marrying and killing are gerunds only. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This one's really easy for me. I would obviously fucking Jean. Uh, No contest there. I would marrying Scott because, you know, he's just like a... What? (laughs) What? (laughs) You know who's great? Storm. (laughs) This could be a long game. <laughs> uh, but so so we're obviously all three of us are kind of I wouldn't say we're Scott apologists because I don't think Scott has anything to apologize for. Um, but he's not the most popular of X-Men. Um, but I do like him and I think he's a solid guy. That whole 
interesting storyline with Emma Frost and new X-Men aside. We won't even talk about that. And I would obviously killing Logan, even though he wouldn't actually dying, but just the, the raw joy of doing it would be enough for me. He is currently dead in the Marvel Universe, so maybe it's because you did killing him. Maybe. Okay, this so this is like really this is the hard this like Scott and Gene and Logan are like my ultimate OT three. So <laughs> you got you got to break them up with yourself. I think you're forcing me to dis, to killing Scott because despite what Gene says about you marrying the good guy and uh, presumably implied fucking the bad boy, I I am marrying Gene and then just. Between the two of Scott and Logan, you've got a fucking Logan. So sorry. <laughs> and I am like the world's biggest James Marsden fan. So I can't even be on his team. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is interesting because we all said this was easy, but we're all doing it differently. Oh, wait. So what are you doing? I'm going to drop a bomb on you guys. I'm going to marrying Logan. I'm going <laughs> to fucking Scott and I'm killing Jean. Because you know what? She'll be back. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's just true. like killing Jesus. He'll be back. <laughs> she'll be back. And I'll be drinking with Logan. And he, both, yeah, <laughs> both your husband and your, what is it, your fuck boy? Yeah. Will be, um, will, 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 that's right. That's, that's, that, that's a fuck boy, right? Okay, um, that's a different thing. <laughs> will be um, crying at you. Yeah, and then and then when she then when she comes back, they'll both leave me. They're both <laughs> leaving me <laughs> for resurrecting Jean. It's true. Uh, good times. All right, but so, Gambit, Gambit shows up at the end of the book. It's true, he does. My other fave, my problematic faves. <laughs> I am so lonely in the fandom world because there's and and Caroline, I think a little bit is as well because. Most of the people in my circle kind of have the same take as Kate that, like, Wolverine's so overexposed and, like, so bored of Wolverine. And I'm just like, no, I'm not. Like, please, can I have some more Wolverine? <laughs> like, clearly, <laughs> not based tired. on your, your invention of what is it? Um... Oh, yeah, we're going to start another podcast called More what? Wolverine, please. <laughs> that'll, that'll be me. I'll be with you. Uh, yeah. And so that's why I'm marrying him, so that I can have more Wolverine all the time, every day. <laughs> also, I think Wolverine would get along real well with Duarte. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's fucking marrying killing, and now we'll move on to our other game of Would You Rather. Uh, would you rather spend time with Scott Summers, or what were, what were we wait, talking wait, about? What? I, I don't remember. Um... I'm sure it's not important. Uh, no. Would you rather have Rogue's mutant power or take the cure? Um, you know, I straight up, I think I would take the cure. Like, I understand the problems with the cure, inherent with the cure. I understand it's not a black and white issue. But, like, fucking not ever being able to talk, touch another human being would destroy me. Like, I mentally would not be able to handle it. Like, props for her for surviving in the movie verse to teenagehood and in the comics to adulthood without just losing her goddamn mind. Uh, but if I couldn't ever touch anyone, I would just not, that would not work out well for me. So I would, I would take the cure. I say, to be totally honest, like, in character with Rogue, who Rogue is one of my favorite characters in the movie verse, 
Um, I'm totally on board with her taking the cure if she wants to take the cure. But I'm like, I don't know. I think I would stick with it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, wait, 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 wait. Can I touch my cat? I'm not sure if her power works in animals. Like, does is the fur a barrier? I think she. I mean, I, let's say that you can, because yeah, that okay. matters for me. Okay, also. if I if I if I can pet my cat, I'll be okay with doing everything else with gloves on. Great. Um, yeah, I would also keep Rogue's power. Uh, I you know I I work at a public library, kind of out at the desk, and sometimes people try to touch me, and when I do not fucking <laughs> want them to touch you. Well, Pro tip: keep your fucking hands to yourself at the library. Anyway. I guess I wouldn't also, necessarily want it to work on children, but it's mostly, like, grown-ass men. So I would love that if some grown-ass man, like, touches me, bam, you are passed out in the library or a subway or, like, wherever. So I, I think the pros of that would be great. And, you know, if, well, it's like we talked about in the last episode where Gambit is like, oh, I wish I could touch Rogue, and he's wearing fingerless gloves. And it's like, <laughs> if you would just, like, put your gloves back together, you could do it, buddy. I feel like... <laughs> I feel like it's not that hard to work around, really. There's there's stuff. We'll stuff you can out. do. I yeah. agree. All right. And last up, would you rather be annihilated by the Phoenix Force or have to repeat high school? All right. Here's an important question. Would I be repeating high school as a 30-year-old woman or would I be repeating <laughs> high school as a 14-year-old girl? Oh, yeah. Are you, are you strangers with candying it or not? I don't know. Yeah. You You can choose. Okay. Um, gosh, um, you know, maybe, maybe I will strangers, I'll choose to strangers with candy and repeat high school as a 30 year old woman. I don't really want to die. I also really do not want to be 14 again. That was pretty shitty. I did not have a very good high school experience. So yeah, I'll repeat high school as a woman in my 30s. It could be kind of fun, but also annoying. Yeah, I think I'd repeat high school uh, in my 30s also. I think I would have internalized, like, not to take things so seriously as I did my first time around high school. I think that would be fine. And I guess assuming, you know, my financial needs are taken care of in this weird scenario, like, could be kind of a good break. And as a teen yeah. services librarian, it would, keep, it would keep me in touch with the youth. You know, I could learn all their memes and stuff. Yeah. Would you find out what Homestuck is? Oh my god, maybe I finally would. <laughs> maybe that's Although I think it take. ended. It did end, but they're still talking about it. Okay. Okay, so my question is, am I repeating high school in forks? Or am I repeating <laughs> high school? You, you may be a transfer student, yes. Okay, I may be a transfer student, and there's like cool vampires and werewolves and shit. <laughs> okay, my, my choice is to repeat high school in the Twilight universe. Fantastic. <laughs> All right, and that's how we play Would You Rather. <laughs> uh, now we will move on to our reader's advisory, where we'll suggest things to read instead of or in addition to the novelization of X-Men TM3, colon, The Last Stand. Um, I will say we're mostly going to skip comics, just because in our last episode about Executioner's Song, we, uh, we did a pretty extensive comics reader's advisory, which we'll link to, but... Uh, you know, if, if you liked those comics, wait, no, that's not how I wanted that sentence to go. Whatever. If you like comics, look at the last episode. For this, we're going to talk about other stuff. And I guess I'll start. I have a, a small list of YA novels about kids with powers with the thought of, like, you know, if you want an, 
a novel to read instead of comics, um, maybe powers are we looking for. And my top choice, of course, is the Curse Workers trilogy by Holly Black, including, uh, I mean, starting with White Cat is the first one. They're so delightful. And the audiobooks are especially great. They're narrated by Jesse Eisenberg, and he is so great at them. And they've got magic and powers and boarding school and crime and a cat. And I just don't know what else you could want in a book. Okay. Um, I would, I guess, now that I remembered that while we were reading this, I would recommend Childhood's, Childhood's End by <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke if you want to know what the hell Claremont was alluding to. And probably every other, like, old freaking 1950s, 1960s sci-fi book that he ripped off his comics from. So there's that. And then also my other recommendation was fan fiction. Yes. All kinds. There's so much fan fiction. Um, you know, I'm sure if you write, write, write to the ladies, they could hook you up. Oh, we can. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about fan fiction before. We'll link to it again. We've put together a guide to, uh, to help you navigate the world of fan fiction. But like I mentioned earlier, I think the X-Men movies were a really good way to navigate X-Men fan fiction. Because if you want to try to write fan fiction about the comics, there's so much stuff you have to take into consideration. And the movies, although they are a little more convoluted, not so bad. Um, yeah, like as I was saying earlier, I've been reading comics since I was a young kid. And despite like literal decades, I mean, there was some time in the middle there that I was not reading like month to month. But despite literal decades of being surrounded by these characters and reading comics. I have never written comics fan fiction that was not for self-contained series because there's just so much. Um, and I guess the other recommendation that I'll throw out is uh, the book Savvy by Ingrid Law, which is another uh, kind of superpower book about a family where the kids get their superpowers at age 13 and this they're called savvies and um the girl who's waiting to discover what her savvy is 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 hoping she can get a good savvy to save her dad grandfather yes save an adult she cares about and it's real good and and what it actually is is really interesting so you should read that yeah uh friend of the show abby has book talked this a lot and i've heard it and she always like builds it up and is like, well, if you want to find out what her savvy is, you have to read the book. And I was like, fuck, I do want to know. So I read it and it's good. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in that nature, we did not give you like the full high quality book talk, but if you want to know what her savvy is, check out the book. Yeah, I purposely made it very vague because it is really interesting to read it yourself and see what happens. So I'm not going to say anything more about it, but you should read it. Um, one thing Caroline and I both uh, were talking about is the book trilogy and also TV show The Magicians which is about kids who have magic. And I would say that kind of like our opinions on Wolverine, (laughs) Caroline and I both like the character Quentin, who is kind of the worst, but kind of the best. And I would also say about that series, um, I had, I was sort of mixed on it for the first two books. I love the third book. I don't want to spoil this series, but the third book deals with certain tropes that X-Men also deals with better than any actual X-Men comic I've ever read. So, Yeah, I agree. So if you like reading about kids who have special abilities, which are not necessarily in line with the definition of mutant power special abilities who go to schools run by mysterious eccentric old men, I would definitely recommend the Mysterious Benedict Society series by Trenton Lee Stewart. Uh, They're very good. They're very fun. They have a lot of puzzles in them. 
and a lot of interesting twists and turns that are kind of worthy of comics continuity, but in a slightly easier to follow manner. Uh, one more thing I'll throw out is the Graceling trilogy by Christian Kishore, the first one of which is called Graceling. It's in a high fantasy world where some people have graces, which are basically mutant powers. It's so good. It's so awesome. I don't even, I don't tend to go for the kind of, you know, swords and dragons, whatever. I don't think there's dragons, but you know, kind of swords and old timey fantasy, but this is so good. I loved it. I couldn't put them down and uh, read them if you haven't already. Oh, and when you find out what Katz's grace is, it's great. So good. All right. Um, well, those are some of our recommendations. We'll have these and some others up on our website, worstbestsellers.com. Tragically, not at ruthless.com. But Sorry. <sighs> but you can, <laughs> you can access those. And like we said, if you want some fan fiction recommendations, tweet at us. Uh, now we'll move on quickly to our candy pairing, where we will suggest a candy to accompany this book, like a fine wine to accompany a better book than this. Um, mine would be a marshmallow that was burned by the flames of the phoenix force (laughs) normally i like a toasted marshmallow but this one got a little bit scorched beyond recognition but some of the inside parts are still pretty good i would say that mine is uh your favorite candy after a recipe change you (laughs) loved it before but now it tastes kind of gross and weird and chemically but you still eat it out of nostalgia for what came previously Oh, or like um, how they change green Skittles to be green apple instead of lime. Wow. Yes. Like that. I'm going to go with Beeman's gum <laughs> because that is one of the random like 70 year old cultural references that um, Chris Claremont threw into this book. And I can't even remember. It's in some bizarre context. Like, uh, there's no- as she's destroying all of the guns, Arclight pops a piece of Beeman's gum. Right. Like what? And I just remember that that was something that my dad bought. Sometimes you would see it in like a gas station convenience store or something while we were like on a road trip. And he'd be like, I liked this when I was a kid 40 years ago. And it was so disgusting. So that's, you know, that's more for Chris Claremont than it is for the book. (laughs) Perfect. Now we will play our favorite game, The Rock, Paper, Snicked, where Kate will say who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book, and I'll say who Wolverine would be if he were in this book. And of course, like with our last episode, there is a slight snag here in that Wolverine is already in this book. But as Carrie and I were saying before, I I don't think there's such a thing as too much Wolverine. (laughs) <laughs> but how we're going to play it is with uh, Laura Kinney, who is the all-new Wolverine in the comics right now. She is a teenage girl clone of Wolverine, because why not? And uh, in the Marvel Universe, <laughs> she, if you are really want to know, you should read the comics. If not, just don't worry about it. Uh, there's a girl Wolverine, and uh, so we'll be playing with her for Snick today. All right. If Dwayne The Rock Johnson were in this book, in the absence of being able to rewrite the entire movie from scratch, which I'd like to do, um, he'd be Wolverine's baseline human boyfriend, who is the real reason that Wolverine came back to the mansion. Uh, He would teach phys ed or something stupid like that at the school. And even though he's not a mutant, like everyone just loves him so much and he has such good advice that he's an asset to the school, so they keep him around anyway. So he weighs in on the whole cure debate with some careful nuance that's missing from a lot of the discussions around <laughs> it. 
And he'd be sure, of course, not to overstep his baseline human privilege because he's a good guy like that. And uh, because of this, Wolverine is never like weirdly in love with Jean and that whole dynamic would shift and he'd be much more clear headed about her sudden reappearance. And it would maybe help stop the clusterfuck of the Phoenix Saga ripoff that was half developed before it could get off the ground. Uh, things would mostly be okay after that, and the movie would end with Wolverine and The Rock relaxing in flannel shirts, drinking beer, and watching a sport. Wolverine would, of course, feed The Rock snacks off of his claws. Aww. Uh, dorms. Alright, well, if all new Wolverine, Laura Kinney, were in this book slash movie, it would be awesome. She would be a student at the school, and she'd be friends with Rogue and Kitty, and she would help them realize that Bobby was actually just kind of a beard for them both. Side note, we did not actually get into the fact that there is this rogue kitty Bobby love triangle in the book and movie. And actually, the book kind of writes it off, but it's it's there in both. Anyway, so Laura would help them realize that they actually neither of them care that much about Bobby. And so Rogue and Kitty would start dating instead. Kitty would figure out how to use her phasing powers and her science knowledge to get a little touchy-feely with Rogue, and they would hang out with her dragon also, since uh, Bobby would be in the story less, it would give a little bit more time for Lockheed the dragon. We'd also get probably some angsty chapters from Laura's Lady Lady Pain point of view, and there would also be a chapter where she hung out with Logan and they ate fruit salad off their claws together. But uh, basically, this the main story would be the same because uh, per the rules of rocks, paper snicked, Laura cannot fight fate. I, I really actually, Kate, your story was great. And I feel bad because I think the deck was stacked in this case because I, uh, I am um, with Renata, a founder of the Never Too Much Wolverine <laughs> movement. And so you got me two Wolverines in there and you also got me <laughs> Kitty Rogue, which is a, a ship I'm very fond of. You also got rid of the um, Bobby Kitty Rogue love triangle, which I hate in that movie <laughs> which i'm glad we avoided talking about um so yeah all of that um sorry i have to snicked yes double snicked but okay <laughs> i loved yours and i would read a twenty thousand word fan fiction of that just gonna well, put that out there when i'm done with this literal two hundred thousand word <laughs> hamilton fan fiction i will get on that yes <sighs> just in time I'm for a parody Christmas. of myself <laughs> <laughs> Let's all eat some snacks off of our claws now and relax. <laughs> uh, no, we cannot relax yet because we have to do the moral of the story. All right. I would say the moral of the story is the pursuit of medical advancement to treat issues that are by some but physically debilitating for others is definitely a black and white issue with good guys and bad guys and no in between. <sighs> I think that leads in well to Caroline's moral. Oh, my moral, um, just to preface this, um, after I saw the Captain America Civil War movie, I came home and I tweeted, the only thing I wanted less in my life than arguing about real politics was arguing about the politics of Captain America Civil War. And then I realized I was wrong because reading this book reminded me I want even less to even think about the politics of X-Men The Last Stand. Um, I... I thought I had a moral, but I don't really see. What were we talking about? What, was what? it? Was it? There's a guy named Sam, Steve. Oh, okay. Oh, we those are really Civil cool War. sunglasses. You have. <laughs> oh wait, Seth? Is it Seth? 
I'm no, sure it's not. I'm sure it's not important whatever we were okay. talking about. We'll just move on to Duarte's corner. Uh, where my cat Duarte will share his opinion on the book. Duarte, yeah, I think um I think you're right. I think we're all right that Rogue can probably pet cats with her powers, because otherwise life definitely would not really be worth living, but I cannot believe that that has not occurred to me in all the time I've been thinking about Rogue. See, yeah, and a it's lot of years. Funny because there, I'm I'm thinking of two like popular internet things that go off that that um, idea. One is a Kate Beaton comic where Rogue breaks a lamp so she pets a cat so that it, when she goes up to Xavier, like he's like, oh, like I could never be mad at you, and like pets her hair like she because she stole the cat's cuteness. Oh my god, I have seen that. I forgot about that. Okay, well then. <laughs> If she can pet a cat and steal its powers, that's okay. <laughs> and but then, yeah, the cat um, was okay. But also, Kate Beaton's comics are not canon. Okay. Yes, it's true. Um, <laughs> and then, true. this is also not canon, but uh, Jesse Ham, who's an artist, did a whole series of drawing sketches where it was like if Rogue touched various things, uh, <laughs> including like some animals and I believe some inanimate objects. And it's pretty great. And uh, I will find that so that we can link to both of those things. In the show notes. Yeah, because I think Duarte would appreciate seeing those. Yes. He likes to see himself represented in literature. It's true, everyone does. All right, do any humans have any closing thoughts about this nonsense? I am excited to see the new X-Men movie because reading this has reminded me that as nervous as I might be about what it's going to be, it cannot be as bad as X3. X-Men TM three colon the last stand. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, I mean, it's a hard thing for me because days of future past, which is the X-Men movie that came before this one, X-Men apocalypse is like, I love it so much. It is my favorite of the X-Men movies. It is probably one of my favorite movies, period. It was a movie that was made for me specifically. (laughs) You say that, you say that, but it had Hugh Jackman's naked ass in it. So (laughs) I think that one, I think that one was a joint product of both of our vision boards, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) How do you feel about buns, Renata? About what? Buns. (laughs) Uh, this is, you know, we already got a uh, iTunes review saying that we ripped off of How Did This Get Made, <laughs> which we did. The bones of this show are directly stolen from How Did This Get Made, and we admitted that on our website, but we did not steal the title of our show from How Did This Get Made, because that does not even make sense. They didn't invent the concept of buns. <laughs> That's true, they did not. But I, I do feel like on that show, June Diana Raphael has the, the market cornered on female podcasters' opinions about buns. <laughs> um, okay, sorry. So I'll, re- I'll refrain from stating my opinion. Okay. But you can probably guess. <laughs> <laughs> Based on my enthusiasm. <laughs> oh, man, we are so good at podcasts. <laughs> we are. We're excellent. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I will let you all know that you can... Follow us on Twitter, where we are the worst bestseller with no S, because we lock the S away in our brains because it was too powerful. We could not handle (laughs) the S. 
Uh, you can also like us on Facebook, where we're the worst bestsellers spelled normally. You can join our Goodreads group, which you can find on our website, worstbestsellers.com, or search Goodreads for worst bestsellers. You'll find it. You can also subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, and now Google Play as well. Uh, and if you do subscribe to us on any of those platforms, please rate and review us. Uh, it kind of pops us up a little bit in the listings, so more people will find our podcast and learn how terrible Wolverine is. Guys, I'm sorry. He just is. He's just everywhere. <laughs> and it's annoying. And Wait, I'm sorry. Know. Is Kate saying something? Or... <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't really mean it. I think she dropped the call. Yeah, she doesn't mean it. I am a Wolverine <laughs> gaslighter of Kate. She... <laughs> I mean, you say you don't like Wolverine, but then you say that you love Days of Future Past. There are two contexts in which I love Wolverine. One is Extreme X-Men, where he's Howlett. Oh my god, the best. And the second is when he's dating The Rock. Okay. But third is uh, other times. Other times, if you look inside your heart, you'll find it to be true. I, I don't think I will. <laughs> but what about when he's eating flaming Cheetos off his claws? <laughs> well, I imagine that he's doing that while he's dating The Rock, so... <laughs> what about when he's taking Jubilee to the mall? <laughs> Fine. I guess, I guess Adopted Dad Logan also falls into... <laughs> Yeah, um, but we'll say that you can be a guest on me and Carrie's podcast. More Wolverine, please. <laughs> uh, what else? Uh, you can follow Wolverine on Twitter at Wolverine. <laughs> Is that a real Twitter? Um, I don't remember. I remember I was in a fight for a while. I think it was at the Wolverine where I kept tweeting at them and asking them <laughs> to let me be in charge of it because I thought I would do a better job. <laughs> Oh, that but was they, the actual social media for the movie. Yeah, it was. Um, they never, they never let me do it. <laughs> so actually, don't follow them. Fuck them. Follow me at Renata Snacks. Anyway, you can follow me at Fourteen Across, um, where we will talk about things other than Wolverine. Probably mostly uh, X Men Apocalypse and Hamilton right now, but you know, whatever. Kate, okay, guess who is in X Men Apocalypse? It's Wolverine. He's in it. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> okay, I'm I'm maybe done gaslighting Kate for the moment. Uh, Caroline, please share your information. <laughs> oh, um, Caroline Pruitt, P-R-U-E-T-T, uh, is my Twitter name. And you write at fantasticfangirls.org and panels.net. Yeah, in theory, I have I'm not really <laughs> doing either of those right now. So. I mostly just have opinions about. Um, I have unpopular opinions about X-Men novels. <laughs> but we love you for them here on The Worst Bestsellers. Awesome. All right. Um, speaking of Wolverine, we will, in two weeks, we will read Lone Wolf by Jody Picoult. I should have looked up how to say her name. Is it like Picoult or Picoult? Is that, is that a werewolf book? Um, not sure yet. I don't think it's <laughs> werewolves, but I think there are actual wolves in it. Oh, okay. Sure, but sure, but in my fanfiction, they're probably werewolverines. I think she has a book about ghost hunters. I'm surprised you didn't read that one. Oh, that would have been so timely. Okay. Well, you know what? Uh, maybe next year, that one. <laughs> okay. Uh, for now, in two weeks, Lone Wolf by 
Jody Picoult. I'm going to confidently say all the letters in her name, I think. And okay, sounds good. Jody Picoult, Lone Wolf, two weeks. We're spessellers.com. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> Bob. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not three bad books in a trench coat. <laughs>